Well, good morning. Uh, before I launch into the sermon, I just want to give you a, a couple of updates. As Mark mentioned, uh, Brooke and I will, and the kids will be going away to visit her side of the family uh, next week, and after that I roll into sabbatical. I want to thank the elders for giving me a four-week sabbatical and just let you know some of my plans for that. Uh, I, I want to unplug from pastoral ministry to rest and be refreshed and spend a bit more time with family during that time, uh, reconnecting with family. Uh, but I do have some goals for professional development and for worship. In terms of professional development, uh, I think it'll be good for me, even just a good habit as a pastor. One of the dangers of pastoral ministry is that you begin to uh, relate with God based on what you do for Him, right, instead of just communing with Him. So, I'll be spending time just reading Scripture other than Ephesians, right? Uh, scripture that I'm not thinking about how I'm going to preach it, right? Uh, spend time in prayer with Him, communing with Him. But I also want to uh, reconnect with some mentors and friends who are in pastoral ministry and ask them some ministry-related questions just to get ideas and counsel from other pastors. I want to uh, do some homework, research, and evaluate whether it would be good for me to uh, invest in some continuing education, like being ordained through the EFCA or getting a doctorate. Um, uh, so I'm going to be spending time on that. I am going to—I've been asked to teach a pastoral counseling class uh, for the Master's Seminary Extension Campus at Emmanuel Bible, and that class begins August 10. So I really kind of need to crank out my syllabus and the homework assignments that the students are going to have, and I'll be working on that as well. And that'll get me thinking about ministry. Uh, how do you do ministry of the Word outside of the pulpit, right? In the pulpit, if you don't mind, let me flatter myself for a moment. I would like to imagine that in the pulpit, uh, what I do is like one of Beethoven's symphonies, right? You write out the music, you deliver it, you play it. But ministry of the Word outside the pulpit is more like jazz, right? It's not a monologue, it's a dialogue. You, you, you're interacting with another person. You're going to say what you say next based on what they're saying now. There's, a, there's an improvisational element to it, and I'm going to be thinking a lot about that as I prepare to try to help uh, guys who are getting training at the Master's Seminary think about ministry of the Word outside of the pulpit and outside of formal teaching. But then for worship, uh, we'll be worshiping at four other churches, and uh, I'm there just to be refreshed from the pews, but also to see how other churches do things, to pick up some ideas. And when, when you're a pastor, you're in the same church every Sunday by definition, and uh, sometimes you don't always see what other churches are doing, ideas they have, ways that we could do ministry better. So uh, even as I'm refreshed at other churches, I'm going to have an observant eye for things that we could do whether it's order of service, how we try and create community in our church, worship music, whatever it may be, I'm going to keep my eyes open. So those are some of my goals for sabbatical, and if you could pray for me uh, to the end that it would be fruitful for those things, that would be so wonderful. I also want to let you know what's coming up in the pulpit. Uh, next week, Sean Mornin from Emmanuel Bible Church is coming, and he's going to be exhorting us from Mark's gospel. I say us, because even though I'll be at uh, Delhi Baptist Church next Sunday, 
uh, probably on Monday or Tuesday, I'll be listening to what Sean preached and looking forward to his message. Uh, the next Sunday, Kirk is filling the pulpit for me. The Sunday after that, uh, there is a retired EFCA pastor, Greg Scharf, coming. And Greg, when I recruited him to fill the pulpit for me, he really, really, really wanted to preach whatever the next passage was in Ephesians. So he's going to launch us into the next section, which is Ephesians 2. I finished Ephesians 1 last week. He's going to launch us into Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, are one unit. And because he's going to launch us into that, I chose not to preach on Ephesians 1. I'm going to preach from 1 Peter today. Because one of the things I love about Peter, one of the things Peter does that it just that he does uniquely, I think, is he has a way of stating what we're doing here in the Christian life in such simple terms, but he acknowledges that it is hard, right? But he captures the Christian life in such simple, straightforward terms that I wanted to come back to that today. But uh, Greg Scharf will be preaching from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, uh, that third Sunday. And then the, the next Sunday, uh, Mark will be filling the pulpit for us. And then the last Sunday in July, Jamie McBride is coming again to preach from Joshua 3. And I don't know about you, but I have so appreciated his first two sermons. Even that last sermon, just helping us not get sidetracked on the red herrings, and helping us understand how to interpret the Old Testament, and that the, the Hebrews put the moral of the story like an Oreo cookie in the middle, and the, those middle verses, and even just the observation, right? Why is God having spies go into the land when that didn't work well last time? You don't need spies when you already have a plan to march around the city and the walls will fall, and the whole reason why is because God is sending them in there to save Rahab and her family. He did just such an excellent job. I was so thankful for his exposition, and he'll be back the last Sunday in July. And then, uh, Lord willing, I'll be back here first Sunday of August. Uh, depending on what happens on sabbatical, I may preach something I'm excited about, but uh, we'll definitely be, be back in Ephesians uh, starting in August. But for today, please turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 11. 1 Peter 2, 11. Peter has such a, a marvelous way of talking about our faith in ways that are beautifully simple. And those of you who know me, you know that I love the Christian academy. I love Christian scholarship. God has not been silent, but He's spoken to us. Uh, and He's given us a book, a book with words and grammar and syntax and historical background that we need to understand. But the other side of Christian scholarship is that sometimes we can overcomplicate the faith, right? And so we need to come back to uh, simple ways to understand our faith. And Peter brings into sharp focus a very simple uh, but hard truth about the faith we've been called to in this passage. But before we read it and dig into God's Word, let's pray for His help. Dear Heavenly Father, Peter's words to us in this passage introduce us to new passions while warning us to abstain from old ones. And I pray that you would take these words and not only enlighten the eyes of our hearts, but also do a sin-destroying, love-awakening work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read the text together. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly desires which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles 
so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. These verses are all about lifestyle evangelism. They're focusing on whether or not the life you live enhances or detracts from the gospel that you say you believe in. And one of the things they point to is this, God is saving a people for His own possession, and He is transforming them so that they would be noticeably different from the world around them. And what these verses teach is that our lives will only make a difference in the world when we stand out in the world by being different. Now, immediately, when I talk about standing out, some of you are terrified by that, right? Maybe you have a social anxiety, or maybe it goes all the way back to when you're in school. You grew up in public school, and so uh, the name of the game was to keep a low profile and not stand out, because if you stood out, you would get noticed, and if you got noticed, you would be picked on by the other kids, and so you just tried to keep a low profile and blend in, and that stuck with you into adult life. Uh, you don't want to stand out. Others of you, though, by contrast, you like standing out. You like giving your opinion, even when nobody asked for it. Uh, maybe you're a little bit of a ham, right? You were a little bit of a class clown, and you like the attention you get. And so, you don't mind standing out at all. It's just that you may not be standing out for, like, the best reasons or the most noble purposes, right? And what Paul is teaching us here is that we represent Christ best when we stand out as people who are different from the rest of the world. And in these two verses, we learn that we stand out best when what sets us apart is our repentance and our good works. Let's look first at standing out uh, by repenting in verse 11. Peter says again, "'Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly desires which wage war against the soul.'" What this amounts to in verse 11 is a fatherly appeal by the apostle. Uh, when he uses that word abstain, he doesn't even give it in the voice of command, and he begins with beloved. Now, in the Greek letters of the day, you won't find writers referring to their readers this way. It, that wasn't a normal thing to do. But Peter loves these people in Asia Minor. He's ministered to them. He loves them. He has an affection for them. He calls them beloved. And again, he doesn't use the voice of command when he talks about abstaining from fleshly desires. And the way I I picture it, the, the mood of it is almost like a loving father putting his arms around his son and saying, son, I love you, and because I love you, I want to warn you about this thing. There's this dangerous thing I want to warn you about. That's the tone of the passage. And he calls his readers aliens, which you could translate as foreigners. I'm talking about them being foreigners in the world. And he uses the word strangers, which you could also translate as exiles or temporary residents. And this goes back to chapter 1. In chapter 1 of the letter, Peter calls uh, his readers heavenly exiles. And the idea is this. We have a dual citizenship. We have a citizenship for the earthly nation we're a part of, but we also are citizens of heaven who are portrayed by Peter as citizens of heaven in exile from our, our heavenly home, and we're temporary residents in the nation that we live in. That, that's what this, uh, this language is tapping into. And one of the things we need to highlight here is this. It makes no sense to talk about being in exile unless you believe in the reality of eternity. Uh, 
If it's true that this world isn't our final home and that history is marching towards a day of rewards and judgment, then that changes everything. It means that we don't live as if this world is our home. It means that we don't live as if this life is our final destination. This life is not our final destination. It's a preparation for the next life. Uh, And this is good for us to hear because I think it's very natural for us to live comfort-loving, pleasure-seeking, entertainment-addicted lives, both physically and spiritually, we are the kind of people we don't like delayed gratification. And what that means is, uh, just because of our nature, we tend to often treat as more valuable physical things than spiritual things. We tend to often treat as more valuable temporary things than things that are eternal in their significance, and it is often easier for us to relate with and value relationship with other human beings than it is our relationship with God. And so, what happens then is we allow our relationship with temporary physical things or with other fallen people uh, to overrule what God says. But the reality is, this life is not our final destination, it's a preparation for the next life, which means this country, the United States of America, in which I believe it is a privilege to live, this country is not your core country. It also means this. It means, I I was dreading saying this, but I have to, it also means your family isn't even your core family right? Jesus warned us ahead of time, there will be times when you may have to choose between following a family member, maintaining good relationship with a family member, and following Christ. Uh, If you follow Christ, there's going to be times where you feel like a foreigner in your own family or extended family because of how different your values and commitments are to the rest of the family. And the good news is, that we have been assigned by Christ to be ambassadors for Him in our generation, and as ambassadors, we are heirs to an eternal kingdom where we have an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and won't fade away, but it also means that in the present, we're heavenly exiles living in the world. And as ambassadors, we represent Christ best when we stand out because of our repentance. Peter says, abstain from fleshly desires which wage war against the soul. Now, when Peter uses the word fleshly here, he doesn't mean physical desires like uh, being hungry for food or being tired and wanting sleep. He's using it in the New Testament with the New Testament meaning of sinful desires. And notice how he portrays these sinful desires. They wage war against the soul. That's important language because the culture around us wants to deconstruct every rule and every law and every religious text to see the oppression that's lurking behind it. Uh, And even in the church, we can sometimes talk about or treat the commands of God uh, as if, well, look, I'm only only human. I know you're only human. I, I, I don't blame you for wanting to break that law, and actually, I don't even... I don't completely get the logic behind it, but God makes the rules, and rules are rules, so we should probably follow it. And and so we can think that way wrongly about God's law, and even that portrayal of God's law is not how Peter describes the reality. The reality is that these fleshly desires that tempt you to break God's law, uh, they may 
taste good, they may be pleasurable for a season, but in the end, they're poison. Sinful desires will destroy your soul if you let them remain in your life in the long run without any repentance. These desires injure your body. They pervert your desires. They enslave your will. They darken your spiritual perception, and they create habits of disobedience to God that when reinforced become very difficult to break. Maybe the way you could think about it would be that maybe this would be a good illustration. I think sometimes in the church, people think, and maybe this is an illustration for children, you know, when you're young, you can hear a pastor, you know, rail against a certain sin, beat up the pulpit, and you think that like, man, the moment you step out of line, lightning from heaven is going to strike you, you know, and one day in your moral weakness, you step over the line, there's no lightning, right? That's not probably the best way to think about sin. Think about indwelling sin this way. It's like a tiger that you get as a little cub, and it's cute, right? It's all furry and cute, and you can keep it and pet it and feed it. And here's the thing. You can go on feeding it for a long time without a scratch, but eventually the tiger will grow up and it'll turn on you. And that's the idea here, that these fleshly desires, if you, if you let indwelling sin keep having its way and you don't ever turn from it, in the end, it will devour you. If you want to live, you have to put to death these desires or they'll consume your soul. And if you want to be an effective witness for God in your own generation, you have to abstain from these desires. You see, we don't just witness with our words, we witness with our lives, how we live. And one of the best ways you can illustrate the gospel is to turn from these fleshly desires, which is is to repent from them. Uh, If you confess your sin uh, in a culture that won't confess it's ever done anything wrong, you'll stand out. And if you can actually turn from those sins in a culture that indulges them, you'll definitely stand out, right? And, And even think about it this way. Sometimes in our culture, people will confess that something they've done was wrong, or it probably wasn't the best thing to do, or it may have been evil in a sense. But often, even when there's that confession, the blame is shifted to someone or something else outside of them. But when you confess your sin for what it is and take responsibility without shifting the blame, and you actually turn from it and change over time, you'll stand out in the world. And I think we all understand that, right? That's just intuitive. This isn't rocket science. Uh, we, We know this just intuitively. There are certain big public sins that if you commit, they damage your witness. Uh, right? Things like being unethical with your money, or living in sexual sin, or uh, uh, not controlling your temper, or being abusive and violent. And I would just say to you, uh, brothers and sisters, if you're trapped in any one of those sins and you haven't been able to overcome it on your own, now is the time to bring someone else into that struggle. Choose another Christian that you can trust, Uh, confessing to, and choose another Christian that you respect and get some help so that you can overcome that sin before it gets worse. Um, You you need help. You need to bring someone into it if there's a particular sin that you're ensnared in. Uh, But as we think about abstaining from fleshly desires this morning, there are two sinful desires that I want to bring to your attention that I believe if you can abstain from them, you will stand out in the world. You know what they are? 
They are bitterness and complaining, right? So many people are bitter, and they're bitter because they won't forgive. But you've been forgiven every sin you've ever committed. So don't avenge yourself with your words on social media, right? Make room for the wrath of God. Don't take revenge. Let God be your final vindicator and the final judge. Forgive others just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. If you can do that, you'll stand out. And if you can abstain from complaining, you will definitely stand out in the world, right? Uh, The complaining of modern Americans, in my opinion, is one of the best proofs that we were made for more than money and possessions, right? Think about it. Uh, I, I love to read history, and the more I read, one of the effects that reading history, I think reading history can have the effect of helping you understand the human condition and the human drama. I think it can have the effect of making you a more discerning person. And I love the drama of it. I love reading about history. But one of the effects of reading history on me is that the more of it I read, the more I'm thankful that I live in the present. That's one of the effects of history on me. We live in a time where we have more comforts, more food, more entertainment, and more free time than our ancestors. So our generation is the generation that complains the least, right? No, not at all. And what it points to is this. Jesus was right when He said, life is not about the abundance of your possessions. And secondly, even when we have an abundance of possessions, we still are tempted to complain. And so, if you can turn from bitterness and forgive others from the heart because of the way that God has forgiven you, yet God has not treated you according to what your sins deserve, but according to His mercy. And if you can take that to heart and forgive the other people who've hurt you from the heart, you will stand out in the world. And if you can grow in thankfulness, gratitude to God, and expressing that gratitude to other people as well, uh, instead of complaining, you will definitely stand out in the world. And so, as we conclude our thoughts about verse 11, I I do want to say this. I think verse 11 presents a big question that each of us Uh, should ask ourselves, is there any sinful desire in your life that's causing you to blend in with the rest of the world? Is there any sin in your life that's hindering your witness and damaging your soul? We stand out by repenting, by becoming models of repentance ourselves, who confess our sins, taking full responsibility, and actually turn and change. Uh, We also stand out by our good works. See, it's not just that we want to abstain from doing some bad things. We also want to stand out because we do good things. We do helpful things. Peter goes on to say, verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is a long enough sentence that we need to break it down and go phrase by phrase. So, let's start with what Peter says about keeping your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Remember that in the context of this letter, Peter's primary readership are not Jewish people. He's not writing to Jews talking about those Gentiles. He's writing to a predominantly Gentile audience. And when he uses the word Gentiles here, he's using it with the New Testament idea of non-Christian. He's not thinking ethnically when he says Gentiles. He's using it in terms of spiritually and, and using the word Gentile to signify someone who isn't a follower of Jesus. Now, in Peter's day, 
the majority of the non-Christians were polytheists, worshiping uh, Greco-Roman gods, right? Uh, in our own day, uh, it appears in America, I think it feels, the ambiance feels like many of the non-Christians are agnostics and atheists. I don't know if that's completely true. Uh, it could be that the agnostics and atheists are the ones with all the microphones and the universities and the media, and so in our mind's eye, it, they have an outsized proportion. But regardless, the point is, whether you're surrounded by agnostics and atheists or polytheists or people who believe in a false god, keep your behavior excellent. Why? Why should I keep my behavior excellent? Well, Peter gives a purpose clause here. He tells you why. He says, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may be uh, also be, honestly, confronted by your good deeds. That's what the end of the verse adds up to. And this alerts us to a very important fact. The assumption of our Lord Jesus, and now the assumption of the Apostle Peter here, is that if you choose to follow Christ, at some point you'll probably be slandered. Jesus said it this way, "'Behold, I send you out as sheep amongst wolves.'" Which that has to be the least comforting word picture in all of Jesus' sayings. It's like, that is not comforting at all. I send you out as sheep among wolves. Uh, he also said, if they called the master of the house Beelzebul and slandered him as having the power uh, to cast out demons only by Satan, then what are they going to say about you who follow him? He said uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. The expectation of the New Testament is that Christians are going to be uh, ill-spoken of and slandered at times by the non-Christians around them. Given the bias of unbelievers against God, even the good things Christians do at times will be ill-spoken of. Uh, and this was true in Peter's day. Uh, and you can read about it for yourself. For instance, uh, the Roman historian Tacitus remarks on how loathed the Christians are by other Romans. Suetonius himself approved of Nero's persecution of the Christians because he said the Christians were, quote, a class of people animated by a novel and mischievous superstition. If you follow Jesus and do good and speak truth, then at some point you're going to be spoken about negatively. In Peter's day, the slander was that the Christians are a threat to the unity of the empire because they won't participate with us in Caesar worship, uh, and they also were seen as just the enemies of human flourishing because of uh, the things that, that, that Christians believed you should abstain from. They were seen as a, a threat to the common good. But what's the slander in our own contemporary setting? In, in this historical moment here in America, what's the slander of Christians right now? Well, the slander is this. You're an immoral person if you believe in the Bible, and you're a hater because you won't go along with the sexual revolution. You're a threat to the common good and human flourishing, but just in a different way than the Romans considered Christians a threat. Now, this is important. With that slander in mind, what is Peter's proposed response to the problem of being slandered? Is it for us, as temporary exiles, to take over the government or to take back the culture? 
See, if the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and Jesus was right when He said there's few who find it, that's going to have some political implications in a democracy. It's going to mean that the true Christians, the genuine born-again Christians, will never be the majority at the ballot box, and that will have uh, implications for the way elections go. Uh, If Paul was right when he said to the Corinthians that not many among us are wise according to the wisdom of the world, not many among us are mighty and politically powerful, not many of us are from the nobility or the aristocracy or those who are wealthy, and it's going on this way because God has chosen the foolish and the weak things of the world to shame those who appear to be wise and strong. If that's what God is doing when He's choosing a people for Himself, why would we think that in any era of history, the best entertainers and artists and writers would be Christians who can create Christian cultural production that the rest of the country is going to enjoy indulging in. That's ridiculous. Christians who think we should take over government or think that we can take over the artistic production of the culture, they're being naively optimistic. And that's not the answer that Peter gives us here anyway. What is Peter's answer instead, verse 12? we respond, our primary strategy for dealing with the slander is to do good. You see, according to Peter, there is an ignorance that often accompanies the slander of Christians. And so, Peter says it this way just a few verses later, down in verse 15 of chapter 2, for such is the will of God that by doing right you silence the ignorance of foolish men. And in context, those foolish men were slandering Christians. So, what that means is this then. We don't respond to slander with slander. We don't fight fire with fire. We also don't become obsessed with defending ourselves. We don't get defensive. Uh, There may be times when it's appropriate uh, to set the record straight or to give counter arguments to the way we're being portrayed, but the primary way we respond to slander is simply by doing good and letting our lives do the talking. Now, if you care at all about the spread of the gospel, and you look this problem of slander in the face, you could be saying to yourself, oh, I get it. Peter is saying we're going to get slandered, and he wants Christianity and the church to have good public relations. So, for the gospel's sake, we have to do whatever we have to do to keep slander from happening. Well, the problem with that line of thinking is that we're never going to be able to make all the slander go away, but we should be involved in doing good things that even the world knows are good. We overcome the slander in part by an abundance of good deeds. And notice in Paul, uh, Peter's deal, dealing with this problem, the large-hearted absence of any spirit of revenge here. His response to slander is not, as, as a religious leader, is not kill the infidels, right? No, just keep on doing good. And one of the reasons He gives us for doing good is actually so that the people slandering us will be converted. That's what He means when He says, do this so that they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So, this is about their salvation. But that language, the day of visitation, it throws us for a loop. And, and really, it means when God visits a person for salvation. Uh, in Matthew 5, verse 16, Jesus says, "'Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven.'" That's what Peter's talking about here. Um, uh, in Luke's gospel, 
uh, Zacharias, when he holds the baby Jesus, Messiah, in his arms, he uses the language of visitation to speak of the mercy God is now showing His people because of what the baby Jesus will grow up to do. Jesus uses this language of visitation to speak about the people of Israel in His own day, not recognizing that He's the Messiah. In Acts 15, James uses this word to describe God, quote, taking from among the Gentiles a people for His own name. So, the idea of visitation here is when God visits a person in a special way for salvation. So, the motive Peter is giving us is that our good works would become part of how we proclaim the gospel because they're an apologetic argument that is unassailable for non-Christians. It's hard to argue with people who do good and do the right thing. It's hard to argue with people who are genuinely loving and self-sacrificial. It's hard to argue with people who have a genuine joy. Those are our best apologetics. Um, Explaining the day of visitation, D. Edmund Hebert explains it this way. The implication is not that the enemies who slander us will praise the noble deeds of Christians, though themselves remaining pagans. Rather, the evangelistic hope is that, like the centurion at the cross, the opponents themselves will be led to glorify and worship the true God. So, this is about evangelism. This is about our witness to the watching world. We can't keep some people from slandering us, uh, and we shouldn't become obsessed with trying. They have their own agenda. They're going to say God isn't real. They're going to say He's mythological, He's boring, that the God of the Old Testament is a monster, and if you worship Him, then you must be morally defective. They're going to say the church is full of hypocrites, and our primary response needs to be to do good works. Now, of course, there, there will be some times where, we ha- where it's appropriate for us to argue back against uh, the accusations they're making, but the primary way we overcome the slander is by doing good. So, let me uh, give you a, just a few examples in, from our own world, from our own time and moment in history of Christians performing good deeds as an answer to slander. Uh, the pro-life, pro-choice debate has always been a heated one. It still is today. But if you go back 30 years ago, you can find a lot of pro-choice arguments about how the people in the pro-life movement don't really care about the mother or the child. Um, But you don't find that accusation so much in the mainstream arguments of the pro-choice movement today. And the reason why is this, because in the last 30 years, thousands of pregnancy centers have been started up that give pregnant mothers free prenatal care, free ultrasounds, free bottles and formula, free diapers, free parenting classes. Uh, And the other side sees that. They see that the pro-life movement really does care about mothers and children and, and is helping them. Now, they still argue that the baby isn't a person, and that a woman should have a right to terminate her own pregnancy. They're still going to argue that way, but in the mainstream, the slander that the pro-life movement doesn't care at all about mothers and children, that's largely gone away. Or here's another example. During COVID-19, when COVID-19 was ravaging New York City, Samaritan's Purse came and set up their mobile hospital in Central Park. And as you would imagine, because they're known as a Christian organization, the outcry as soon as they set up their tents was that the city of New York has invited a bunch of Christians who are homophobic into the city uh, to do this thing. Uh, and, and there was an outcry against it. But what happened with the news coverage over time? 
the doctors and nurses uh, who came from, with Samaritan's Purse, the doctors and uh, nurses that came, came on their own dime, risking their own lives and uh, um, sacrificing for these people, and they did their jobs professionally because Samaritan Purse, a Samaritan's Purse doesn't like recruit doctors and nurses who are hacks. You have, there's qualifications if you want to work with them, and they did a professional job, and the non-Christians saw it, and even the New York Times published positive articles about Samaritan's Purse. I, I remember reading one article, and I'm just waiting for it. I'm like, when are they going to get there? When are they going to say they're Christian? When are they going to… And they, it was, the whole thing was positive from start to finish, not a negative word in the whole thing. I was wondering how the journalists got it past the editorial board. Like the rule at the New York Times is, you're supposed to make Christians look silly and stupid and dumb. How that article got printed, I'm not quite sure. But what happened is they saw that the people of Samaritan's Purse were doing a good work and doing it professionally, and they published a positive article. Let me use another illustration that's closer to home for us here at Grace Fellowship Church. Uh, years ago, there was a man who visited our church, and he wanted to talk with me after the service, and he had a lot of questions. I gave him straightforward, honest answers to every question he asked, but <clears throat> as uh, our conversation continued, as it got longer and longer, he wanted to talk with me for like 45 minutes. And as our conversation continued, I began to grow more and more and more uncomfortable with what the questions he was asking seemed to assume about our church. And so, as soon as he left, I was still here at the church, I went into uh, the parlor office and pulled up my computer, uh, I went right in, pulled up his name, and I found out that it was a, he's a blogger who has a website, and the website is dedicated to one thing and one thing only publishing negative articles about churches. You couldn't find a single positive article anywhere on his website about churches. And immediately when I discovered that, the injustice of it all got to me. Here this man is. He's a self-appointed judge, jury, and executioner. He doesn't have to have any credentials. There's no board that uh, vetted him. He just gets to set up a website and uh, at the drop of a hat, slander churches and pastors. There's no, uh, uh, th there's no board he works with uh, to moderate his statements. There's no one, if I think he's treated us unfairly, there's no uh, partner with him in his work that I can appeal to. He just gets to publish whatever he wants about churches. And not only that, uh, around that same time, about a week later, he actually put on the homepage of the website, he was asking people to contribute bad experiences from Grace Fellowship Church in Fredericksburg, Virginia. He was fishing for it. He wanted it. And here's what happened. How did the story resolve itself? First of all, he didn't really find any dirt on us to begin with. But secondly, th this is what uh, put the whole thing to an end. There had been a man who had uh, worshiped with us for two years. And this man left us in the end because he actually came, he, he was in the middle of his own spiritual journey, he had a lot of questions, he was questioning, he was happy to come and be a part of our worship services, he came to our fellowship lunches and our picnics and participated with us, I consider, even to this day I consider him a friend. But he was in the middle of his own spiritual journey, and he came to the conclusion that our understanding of the gospel is wrong. And from my perspective, he chose another gospel, right? Which 
which by definition means I'm not trying to be mean, I'm not trying to be judgmental. I, I don't think he's saved. I don't think he's a believer. He rejected the gospel that we offer. And, and so even though that's the spiritual situation he's in, he wrote into this blogger and basically said this, uh, I disagree with their doctrine, with the doctrine that that church teaches, but while I was with them, they always treated me kindly, and when we debated about doctrine, they were always respectful. And that was the end of it. It went away, and there was no negative article about Grace Fellowship Church. Uh, see, what we do is we want to adorn the gospel with good works, and we want to respond to slander by continuing to do what is right. Uh, that makes the gospel clearer to people, uh, and it even makes the gospel clearer to those who slander us. Um, our message is that God is good, and He is the loving Creator of all things, but humanity has rebelled against Him and broken His law. We deserve judgment, but Jesus came and took the judgment we deserve so that we could be forgiven. But in order for us to be forgiven, we have to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, confess our sins, and turn from it, to, to confess our rebellion from God and follow Him. That's our message, and it's a message that doesn't need to be altered in our generation, but it does need to be adorned with good works. And so, I would just conclude by asking you this, brothers and sisters, is there any sin in your life that's damaging your witness? And if you're stuck in that, be willing to get help from a brother or sister. And also, wherever God has you, in whatever family you're in, whatever career you're in, wherever you live, whatever neighborhood, whatever location, what good works can you do that will adorn the gospel that you preach? Let's pray.